Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 4 to 6a. This is the word of God. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Our Father, we're so grateful to come to your word this morning, and we just... I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power this morning as we see more of Jesus, that that we would be granted to see something of the glory of Jesus Christ this morning, and we would be transformed by it for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago at the Gospel Coalition Conference, I attended a message from Crawford Loritz an author and pastor in Georgia and a visiting professor at Trinity. And he said something that struck me during his talk, which I've often thought about since. He said this, faith grows in proportion to desperation. It is never theoretical. Let me just say that again. Faith grows in proportion to desperation. It is never theoretical. That resonated with me. Thinking about times in my own life when I was in a desperate situation, desperation narrowed the focus of my need for and dependence on the Lord. That's faith. We'll be looking today at several people in today's passage, and they all have this in common. They were desperate. They were all at the end of their rope, which brought a concentrated clarity on their need for and dependence upon Jesus. As we go through these episodes together, we will see that Jesus is the overcomer. He overcomes defilement, death, disabilities, and demons. And then we're going to consider at the end what responses to Jesus look like from the people in these stories, and more importantly, how we respond to Jesus. So number one in your outline If you haven't turned back to Matthew chapter 9, please do so. I'm going to start reading Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus overcomes defilement. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I, can, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and saying, seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. We'll come back to the ruler with the daughter who died in our next point. But first, on his way to the man's daughter, Jesus has an encounter with a desperate woman. And before we talk about the details, let's just consider 
that Jesus is on his way here to a pretty significant situation with this man's daughter. But note that he's interruptible. He stops for a woman who desperately needs him. So here's some application right at the outset. Never hesitate to go to Jesus. He's never too busy for those in need. He's never too busy for you. Now, the severity of this woman's situation is almost impossible to overstate. She had a bleeding condition called menorrhagia in modern terms. It was a menstrual flow which would cause anemia, probably some kind of tumor or deformity in her uterus, and it was incurable. She had been in this condition for 12 years, and no one was able to help her. In Mark's gospel, we learn that she'd spent any money she had on physicians, but they were of no help. Things just got worse for her. Depending on how old she was, if this happened early enough in her life, it would have prevented her from being married. If it happened later, she would almost certainly have been divorced. Apart from the, the mere physical misery, the, the condition would also have made her ritually unclean, defiled. So she could not be a part of any kind of Jewish faith community. Shunned by all, including her family, for 12 years. She was virtually a leper, an outcast from her family and from her village, excluded from any kind of normal social interactions for 12 years. And of course, economically, it was devastating. She couldn't earn anything, couldn't be around her community. One scholar says her overall condition is almost unbearable, in some sense as good as dead. She's absolutely desperate, but she knows about Jesus. She's used to being on the outside of things, separate, isolated, excluded. Just to be in town here with the crowd was an act of courage. Someone who's been unclean for 12 years would be known by the people. If detected, she would be thrown out, unclean, not supposed to be there, or you would make us unclean. So just brave of her to even be there, but she's not just in the crowds from a distance. She's trying to get close enough to Jesus. Now, she knows her mere appearance in public would be scandalous, so in her desperation, she thinks to herself, if I can just touch his cloak, I can be made well. Jewish men who followed the law, which Jesus did, wore a cloak with tassels on the four corners of the cloak. If I can just touch one of the tassels, just one. She clearly knew the uniqueness of Jesus here because the law, which was well known, Leviticus 15, for instance, would have meant that in her state, if she were to touch a man's cloak, that would make him unclean. So she's trying to stay as hidden as possible. It's already scandalous that she's here in a public setting with all these people around her, but scandalous in the extreme if she were to intentionally make someone else unclean. But she knew enough about Jesus to know that unlike anyone else, he has the power to reverse that effect. Instead of him becoming unclean, Jesus makes the unclean person clean. In other words, she believed that Jesus overcomes defilement. 
This is so risky for her, but she's convinced of Jesus' healing power. So this is an act of faith in Jesus, in who he is and the power that he has. Verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he looked at her. And of course, everyone else then looked at her. What a frightening moment for her. She's so desperate. She has no sense of entitlement. She knows she's not supposed to be in this public area. She'll be thrown out if she's found out. She just intentionally touched the rabbi's garment. And he looks at her and draws all attention to her. She must be terrified. Twelve years of hiding on the outside. Imagine this. And now she's on center stage with Jesus. And Jesus says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. The blood dried up immediately. So much here. Let's first talk about her faith. Like the story last week, when the men brought the paralytic through the roof of the house, Matthew says, when Jesus saw their faith, the woman's circumstances, her 12-year misery, her courage, the risk, knowing Jesus was different and would reverse and overcome, it made her faith in him very obvious, and he saw that. And Jesus says her faith made her well. Now, this is important. Just like with the ruler we will look at next, her faith comes prior to the healing. Do you see that? We often hear stories of people coming to faith because they were surprised by a gracious work of God in their lives, perhaps an overwhelming miracle that that transforms their understanding of, of who God is, and God uses that to bring them to faith. Okay, God sometimes does that. That's not what happened here. Her faith in Jesus was strong before the healing, before the miracle. Now, her faith wasn't perfect, was it? There's a superstitious element mixed in with this, isn't there? The touching of the cloak, she thought. But Jesus makes it clear that her faith in him is the instrumental cause, not the superstition that's mixed in with it. Some are bothered by this element of it. I'm I'm actually encouraged by it, and this is why. Because it tells us you don't have to have perfect doctrine before you come to Jesus. You don't have to have all your dogmatic ducks in a row before he listens to you. You just have to know your need. You just have to know that you're desperate for him and know that he alone can save O'Donnell says this, you don't have to have all your theology in order to come to Jesus in faith. You just need to come. You need to push through the crowd and come to him. And the more empty-handed, the better. The early church father, Jerome, says of this woman, her faith may have been childish, but it was also childlike. Her faith is demonstrated by the fact she knows her cure lies with Jesus and with Jesus alone. There were errors in her views about Jesus' power, but she knew Jesus had the power, and Jesus condescends to meet her where she's at theologically. I love that. 
So her faith was not perfect, but boy, was it strong. Now, important to note, Jesus doesn't just heal her. He restores her. Okay, he could have kept the healing private, but her uncleanness was public, so he makes her cleansing public. When he looks at her and calls her out, take heart, she's got to be petrified. She's been confined to the background, isolation for over a decade, imagine this. Everyone knows she was an outcast. Everyone is now looking at her. This is the woman we know is unclean as long as we've seen her. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I, I know this is extremely public right now, and you're very afraid. Take heart, daughter. Wow. He shares in her brokenness in order to make her whole. He enters into her, her, her humiliation in order to restore her to full standing in the community. Jesus engages her affectionately, publicly, as daughter, and so brings all of his credibility and honor and bestows it upon her. But there's more. This word rendered made you well, your faith has made you well in the ESV. It's the Greek word for saved. That's why some translations, it is daughter, your faith has saved you. Matthew seems to push this beyond physical wellness and even restoration to spiritual wellness. A member of his family, a daughter, a disciple. This physical healing is part of a fuller salvation for this woman whose faith in Jesus was made public by Jesus himself. As Doriani says, by insisting on this personal encounter, Jesus completed her restoration she sought a physical healing, but she received far more as we always do when we meet Jesus. So Jesus exhibits her faith very publicly for everyone to see. Okay, these are just three short verses in Matthew, and I'll just tell you right now, if someone was faithful to this text and made a full-length movie of this woman's story, I would watch it a dozen times. I mean, so much here, so powerful. And it's striking in the Gospels how many women who have faith ex exceeding men because women were sort of second-class citizens in this culture, demonstrating how the socially powerless more readily embrace the Gospel because they more readily see their poverty and desperation and their need for Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Faith grows in proportion to desperation. This woman came to Jesus in a very personal desperation and dependence on him, and Jesus very personally saves her. Paraphrasing Osborne, God is sovereign over this world regardless of our faith, but through faith, through a Christ-dependent lifestyle, we experience his sovereignty at the depths of our being. So far from this being some kind of side quest of Jesus on his way to resurrect the ruler's daughter, Jesus engages in one of the most beautiful and I think emotionally powerful events of salvation in all of Matthew. Let's consider now our second point. Jesus overcomes death. Let me start reading back again in verse 18 and then I'll skip ahead. 
While he was saying these things to them, and behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now let's go down to verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd making a commotion. And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. We learn a few more details about this story from the other Gospels. Uh, this man's name was Jairus. He was a, a ruler of the synagogue, and this was his, his only daughter. And here's another story of desperation. This man comes to Jesus and kneels before him, okay, at a minimum, this is showing incredible respect for Jesus, but elsewhere in Matthew, it's stronger than that and closer to, if not including, worship, like was the case with the Magi when they visited Jesus in his infancy. Now, in Mark, the story is split between the girl is going to die and then before Jesus comes, she has died, so why bother him kind of thing. In Matthew's account, the word used can mean near death or has just died, basically at the point of death. And so various translations render it differently. But the point is this. For all practical purposes, his only daughter is as good as dead. Consider the emotional weight here, parents. Only daughter. He asked Jesus to come and, and lay his hand on her and she will live, he says. Okay. Like the woman in the story we just looked at, this man's faith is not based on some amazing thing God has done in his life. It's based on trust in who Jesus is and what he can do. Certainly like the woman, Jairus didn't have perfect theology as we saw with the centurion in chapter eight. Jesus can just say the word. He doesn't need to even lay his hands on her, but this man knows the solution to his desperate plight lies with Jesus and with Jesus alone. That's his faith. Here's one scholar's amplified paraphrase of Jairus' plea to Jesus. My daughter has died, but I have faith in you. I may not know exactly who you are, a prophet, the Messiah, God in the flesh. What I do know is that God is with you in a unique and extraordinary way that he's with you as he was with Elijah and Elisha. And just as they raised the dead, I believe you, Jesus, if you would just come to my house and simply lay your hand on her, not stretch over your body, stretch your body over the child like Elijah did, and not even hand to hand, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes like Elisha did, but simply lay your hand on her. I believe she will be brought back to life. Okay, No one had been raised from the dead at this point in Jesus' ministry. So the faith this man has in Jesus and what he can do is extraordinary. Now in those days, after someone had died, the services would start fairly immediately as the body would quickly decay. So when Jesus came to the ruler's house, things were already underway. Professional mourners would be employed to loudly mourn. This would help People feel comfortable expressing their grief. It sort of expedited the mourning process and the service for the dead. Also, they had people playing the flute, performing some kind of a dirge as 
People lamented loudly. This was standard practice. In fact, we learned from ancient documents that two flutes and a wailing woman were required, even for the poorest people. But in a situation like this, with a ruler, perhaps many more involved, lots of commotion when Jesus arrives. Well, anytime Jesus walks into a funeral, (laughs) things are about to get interesting. And he tells these performers and those mourning, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, understandably, this comment draws laughter, because just like with us today, they knew when someone was dead. I mean, it's, you don't need to be a post-enlightenment scientist to know that when someone's dead, they're dead, and it's irreversible. Jesus says she was sleeping, by which he probably is indicating that Her current state is not permanent. She's going to awaken. So after the people had been put outside, Jesus goes in to see this dead girl and touches her hand as the father requested and believed. Now here again, we see Jesus' uniqueness in his power and his relationship with the law. Just like the law would apply in the last story, when you touch a corpse, you become unclean. But Jesus, again, has the opposite Effect. He makes the unclean clean. And he not only overcomes defilement, in this case, he overcomes death. This little girl, Jairus' daughter, who was dead, is raised to life. The great enemy of humanity is death, isn't it? Jesus demonstrates here he has the power over death. Now, as we mentioned before, These miracles throughout Matthew are not just random acts of wonder to get people's attention. They all point to the specific purpose of his coming. We see in the first story, Jesus came in order to make people clean. We see here, Jesus came in order to destroy death. Now this girl would die one day, again, a natural death. But what Jesus came to ultimately accomplish And what this resurrection points to is eternal victory over death on our behalf. And he would do that, of course, through his cross and resurrection. This is the great hope of Christianity. O'Donnell tells the story of the great reformer Martin Luther, who lost his 14-year-old daughter to the great plague that swept through Europe in the 16th century. Those who knew Luther later recalled that event this way. Brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. Then when she'd finally died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of the coffin, Luther screamed out, hammer away, hammer away, for on the last day she shall rise again. I think of our sister Anne Swartley. And all our brothers and sisters we've lost to physical death. Let's remember, nothing can stop Jesus' victory over and power over death. To paraphrase Luther, when we lose another sister, another brother, another child, we can say, hammer away, hammer away. For we on that last day with our sisters and brothers in Christ shall rise again. Jesus overcomes death. Number three, Jesus overcomes disabilities and demons. Let's start reading in verse 27. 
And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. If you remember at the very beginning of Matthew, he starts with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Okay, this is an incredibly important title. It harkens back to the Hebrew script, the the Jewish uh, scriptures, the Old Testament, in multiple threads. King David, of course, was promised a son, like in Samuel 7, which was partially fulfilled in Solomon, but was clear in that covenant promise that this would be someone beyond Solomon and greater than Solomon. For this promise made clear he would be a son of God in some sense, and that his kingdom would have no end. So this son of David was the anticipated Messiah to the Jews. He would be this promised ruler of Israel who would usher in God's messianic age of blessing. We read about some of this in Isaiah 35 that Randy read in our scripture reading before the message. This servant king would be a savior and a healer. He would bring healing. The eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are all anticipations of this messianic age and this son of David. So here... This is the first time Jesus is called the son of David in the narrative. And it's blind men who ascribe to him this title. Fascinating, Matthew would have us see that. The first to see his true identity as the promised son of David are blind. And they plead with him. According to the mercy and healing that was prophesied about him to open their eyes. Their faith And Jesus prompts them to seek his healing. But Jesus asks them, do you believe I am able to do this? Again, Jesus personally requires their faith be displayed publicly in him. They They have an irreversible disability. They're unable to see. And Jesus forces them to clarify that they acknowledge his ability to heal them personally. They say, yes, Lord. And he touches their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. In other words, because you have faith in me to do this, their eyes were opened. Now we see here next what is sometimes called the messianic secret. Jesus sometimes tells people, and in this case, he tells these men not to tell anyone. Jesus didn't just come for the miracles. He wants to point people to his identity and his mission of what these miracles are meant to do is to point to that. He wants people to understand what he came to do. First to deal with sins, ultimately overcome all disabilities, all defilement and death, and as we'll see next, to overcome demons and Satan as well. But that will ultimately be accomplished in his cross, and his resurrection. After that event, he tells his disciples to go tell everybody. Because when you connect Jesus to the ultimate mission, no one will be led astray. At this point, however, someone might get the report and get the wrong idea about what Jesus is about and what his mission is. Nevertheless, these men can't help themselves. 
And it's hard to blame these guys, to be honest with you. I mean, when Jesus touches your life like this, it seems impossible to be silent about it. Let's continue reading in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, couldn't speak, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So here, we encounter a person with another disability. He was unable to speak. In this case, the man's mute condition was caused by demonic oppression. Okay, we see throughout the Gospels that frequently, though not always, these conditions can be caused by demons. And it makes sense, especially during this time in redemptive history with so much conflict with Satan culminating here as we approach the cross. The Son of Man is here. There's a lot of spiritual activity, and the forces of darkness come to the forefront. Remember, way back in the beginning, the Garden of Eden, Satan has been doing everything he can to pervert the blessing of creation. The destructive nature of the fall of man the resulting corruption, the curse upon creation. Everything's been affected, and Satan has co-opted as much brokenness as he can to pervert man's dominion on earth. And that includes sickness, illness, disability, ultimately death. Satan loves those things. And he uses them against the offspring of Eve in that great conflict that has continued since the fall. But remember, in Genesis 3, God promised that the offspring of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the serpent in a definitive blow. Well, that offspring of Eve is here. This is the son of David, the son of God. As we read in 1 John 3, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus gives a foretaste of that great victory over Satan and all his demons on the cross by casting out this demon and healing this man. His tongue is loosed. He begins to speak. And here again, people knew this man could not speak. So, so when he did, they marveled. It never, we've never seen anything like this. Never was anything like this seen in Israel, they said. Jesus overcomes disabilities. Jesus overcomes demons. But not everyone's impressed. Verse 34, the Pharisees didn't like what was happening. So they say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Notice, they don't deny the miracles because they can't. Everyone, including them, knew the condition of these people. They don't deny what's happened. They acknowledge the truthful telling of these events. They don't try to explain these miracles away. Like, it really wasn't that remarkable, or it's not what it looks like. No. This is sometimes referred to as the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. Because they give testimony to what's happening. But instead of submitting to faith, is submitting in faith to him, they literally demonize Jesus. He's using demonic power to cast out demons, which really doesn't make sense as Jesus will make clear later in chapter 12. But for now, just note they don't deny what's happening. They just don't like it. So they say whatever they need to say in order to not bow the knee 
to Jesus and somehow try to maintain their religious authority. It reminds me of the country's 90s country song, which I'll paraphrase a lyric. I don't like him, and I'll think of a reason later. (laughs) So in this case, the man healed could not exercise faith because of the demon. So sometimes Jesus does a miracle that produces faith in Jesus. Sometimes, as in previous instances, faith in Jesus produces a miracle that Jesus does. And sometimes, as with the Pharisees, people refuse to exercise faith despite the miracle. In light of this, Blomberg summarizes this way. No one can predict what's going to happen in a given situation. That's right. Okay, we've seen Jesus the overcomer. He's demonstrated in miraculous and powerful ways in this story that he overcomes defilement, death, disabilities, and demons. I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about responding to him personally as we see in these stories. We see three general categories of responses to Jesus in our passage, and I wonder how you will respond to him this morning. First, There's the denier. The Pharisees saw what everyone else did, but they denied Jesus' identity as the son of David, the Messiah. He didn't fit the mold they wanted. Jesus challenged their authority, their integrity. He made them uncomfortable. They didn't want someone in their kitchen upsetting their traditions and their prestige among the people. Like many people today, they felt they had too much to lose if Jesus is Lord. But the Pharisees did not have the luxury of deniers today. Today, you might hear people deny Jesus even existed, or at a minimum, that Jesus never did these works of God. Deniers weren't able to do that back then because everyone could see what happened. The only thing they could deny is whether Jesus was from God. Thus, their response, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That was the only category of denial they had available. Now, I want to be really careful. I'm not talking about skepticism here. There's a place for asking questions. That's good. That's what we want. There's a place for seeking satisfying answers to your questions about Jesus. The the question of the resurrection of Jesus, for instance, the central historical event in the Christian faith, one that we'll celebrate officially in a couple of weeks, Christianity is not true if that didn't happen in history. If that didn't happen in history, Jesus is not, in fact, the son of David, not the son of God. Now, I've never seen anyone rise from the dead, and I doubt that you have either, so it's a good question. However, we're convinced there is no plausible alternative explanation for what happened in history. So will you investigate? Will you be open to evidence? Will you look into it? If you are, I would love to talk to you about that, suggest some resources to help answer your good questions. Jesus was always willing to engage those who were seeking and asking genuine questions, and that's the kind of church we want to be at Orchard. That's not what the Pharisees were doing. They weren't asking genuine questions. They made up their mind that despite any evidence... Because they were afraid of the implications to their own lives if Jesus was 
who he claimed to be. So don't let fear of implications to your life cloud your judgment and openness to hearing the answers to your questions. Don't be a denier. The second category of response we see in our passage is what I'll call the dazzled. Verse 33. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. As Greg explained last week, the, this is the bulk of the crowds who said, this is amazing. I mean, this guy's legit. They weren't deniers. They followed along. What's he going to do next? He seems like the kind of leader I want to follow. The problem with the dazzled is that that's all they are. And they're not affected personally by Jesus. They're fascinated from afar and may follow along in the crowds. But when things got hard, when Jesus claimed authority over their lives, when they were faced with following Jesus at the expense of what they wanted to do, they chose their own personal autonomy to live how they wanted and they stopped following him. Hey, these, this healing stuff, these exorcisms, this is amazing. This is great. But I'm going to live how I want, right? I mean, just because you say something, Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean I agree. Your word's not binding on me. I mean, I still get to decide, right? I mean, you don't own me. Maybe some of them were even shouting Hosanna when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But they were also those who later in Pilate's courtyard shouted, crucify him. I fear there are many in this category in American churches today. When push comes to shove on their own autonomy, they would put Jesus back on the cross. Jesus is great. Church is great. Important part of my life. I've seen God work, do great things. I couldn't do it without him. But I need to live my life. I mean, just because the Bible says something doesn't mean I need to obey it. I mean, if something in his word chafes against my political tribe, for instance, those are my people. If my sexuality, for instance, is my business. I mean, as long as I'm happy and feel good about my decision, that's more important than some verse in the Bible. I mean, I'll, t I'll attend a church as long as they agree with me. But to come under the lordship of Jesus and his word, I mean, that's a little strong. I'll cheer God on what he's doing, but uh, be careful invading my personal decisions. If you're in that category, you don't know Jesus. The final category, and this is my prayer for all of you, is that you'll respond by becoming a disciple. Jesus calls for personal faith in these stories. Not because it was a necessary ingredient for Jesus to be able to heal. I mean, it's not that Jesus' power is somehow governed by their faith. But faith enables them for the healing to be more than just a physical experience and become a spiritual one. Jesus turned and looked into the eyes of the woman personally and in a public setting Take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. The ruler knelt before him and personally trusted Jesus to overcome death. Jesus asked the blind man, do you believe I'm able to do this? And he says, because of your faith, your trust in me, it's done. Here's the thing. Jesus healed these people, and some people who lived next door weren't healed. 
Jesus can and does heal people today, and some people aren't healed. Far more important than the healing is what these healings point to in the gospel. In and of themselves, they're just temporary healings. All these people were eventually disabled by something else, and all of them died. But what all these things point to is paramount. What he would overcome in his victorious death and resurrection. Jesus overcame defilement eternally. Ephesians 5, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. He overcame disabilities eternally. Philippians 3, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He overcame death and demons eternally. Colossians 2, and you were dead, God made alive together with him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is Satan and demons. Put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We started this morning with Crawford Loritz. Faith grows in proportion to desperation. It's never theoretical. Each of the people in our text were desperate. This is what you need to understand this morning. Every single one of us is desperate without Jesus Christ and desperate eternally. Do you understand? This is not theoretical. Okay, whether you feel this way or not, if you're outside the family of God, you have no hope. Our only hope is in Jesus. The one who can save us is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the servant of the Lord who offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He's the merciful son of David who shared in the brokenness of the unclean. He's the son of man who shared in our humiliation and shame on the cross. He's the son of God who took our death and rose from the dead. Those in our passage understood their need for Jesus. They understood their only hope, their only solution was in him and in him alone. Do you understand that this morning? Don't be a denier. And don't be merely dazzled by Jesus. Be a disciple. Understand your desperation. Put your faith personally in him, as these people did. Bow the knee to him like this ruler did. Like the woman, Jesus can make you clean right now through his work on the cross. He can remove all impurity, all shame, that you might stand clean before God. He's that powerful. He can destroy the devil's works in your life, removing the guilt and condemnation, nailing it to the cross. Like this official's daughter who was dead, he can make you alive right now, alive spiritually and one day physically. And on that day, he will rid your body of all disability, all imperfection, and give you a body like his resurrected, glorious body. We read in Luke 24, and I'll close with this. After his resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two men who didn't recognize Jesus, the resurrected Christ. They were blinded to who he really was. But when, they began to, when he began to teach them, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. That kind of blindness is pervasive today, even in the church. Maybe this Jesus is confusing to you, but you know you need him and you understand he can save you. Would you push through the crowds and go to him? 
Will you push through your fears and your doubts and grab hold of him? Maybe you've been blinded to who he really is and to who you really are. If that's you this morning, would you pray and ask this son of David to have mercy on you? He will open your eyes that you might see clearly your desperation and that you might see clearly the overcoming power and beauty of his salvation. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. What a man, what a Savior, what a God. We're so grateful for these stories that point us to our own desperation. And Lord, I just pray for those here who are in a desperate situation, that they might reach out to you, our only hope. And especially those, Lord, who are outside of your family right now, that don't know you. Maybe they have doubts or concerns or questions. May they ask those to get some answers. May you teach them. They need to be dependent on you and you alone. Lord, you're so gracious to us. We're so thankful for Jesus this morning. Amen.